in your Bible, the book of 1 Timothy for a few minutes this morning, 1 Timothy. I'm doing a series that has taken a year almost. I think we're on about the 55th or 58th book of the Bible now. Recently, we had 1 Timothy. I, I teach 30 minutes on Wednesday night on one book of the Bible, or each book of the Bible. We started Genesis. We're going through, and this p- past week while we were in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, rather. And as I studied for that Wednesday night message, I just rediscovered an old and familiar verse that I'd like to speak to you from this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you'd stand with me right now as I read to you from God's Word, just a very short passage, but I want you to have it there before you so you can see uh, the points that I make from God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. Why don't we all read it together? Good and loud now, everybody participating. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'll read it again. This is a faithful saying. And it is worthy of all acceptation, meaning it is worthy to be universally accepted. Everybody ought to accept this statement. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and the Apostle Paul adds, I'm the chiefest of them. Now, if you'll go over to chapter 2 in 1 Timothy with me, it also continues along this line, who will have all men to be saved. I want you to notice the little word there, all. It is God's intention that all men be saved, and for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for who? All. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So we have Christ coming into the world in chapter 1 and verse 15 to save sinners. In verse 4 of chapter 2, it is he wants all men to be saved. And in verse 6, he gave his life a ransom for all. Thank you, and you may be seated. <clears throat> when you walk into our church here, if you are looking around and observing you are going to notice that there are reminders of the gospel everywhere. We try, we, they're, they're there by intention. So if you walk in the main entranceway over here because the biggest parking lot is over here, and you walk into this south door, into the foyer, you look up there to your right, there is a huge plaque, and it contains a description of the gospel, the best description of the gospel maybe in all the Bible, It comes from 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day, and he was seen of many witnesses. You see a big plaque. You see other plaques regarding the spreading of the gospel for us as a church. You come into the auditorium and you're seated, you can't help but notice this big lighthouse over here to the right, a symbol of the gospel of Christ, that we must get the gospel out, that we are to communicate the light of the gospel into a dark world. 
You go around the building, you'll see evidences of our missionaries, about 65 or 70 missionaries that are somewhere in the world spreading the gospel of Christ. Some of their pictures are out there in the foyer right now. And then you look up behind me, the scene that dominates you, you couldn't help but notice is a cross that uh, is there in the baptistry, representative of the gospel. You go down the halls, you'll see track racks because we encourage our people to give little gospel tracks and to share the gospel with people in any way that they can possibly do. And uh, very soon on the front yard, we've provided a beautiful garden setting. There will be a monument, a statue of a figure who is sowing the seed of the gospel. And he's standing on the top of a globe, the world, because the role of the church and the role of the Christian is to take the gospel to the entire world, to keep on sowing the gospel seed, if you will, across the world. And so the reason you see all of those reminders is because we believe the single greatest need of every human being on this planet is that they come to salvation, that they trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Maybe that doesn't just explode your head today that you are shocked by me saying that. I, I would think now that you probably expect me to say something like that. But because you've heard it so many times, don't let familiarity cause you to have contempt for it. Because the gospel is what the church is all about in the final analysis. And there are very few places in all of written Scripture that better describe the gospel than 1 Timothy 1 and 15. I read it again. This is a faithful saying. It is worthy of being accepted by every single person on the planet that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I want you to notice with me first in that verse, the people for whom Jesus came. The people for whom Jesus came. Why did Jesus come to this planet? Because, ladies and gentlemen, there's a one-word description I can give you of every single solitary human being who ever lived. And that word is sinner. S-I-N-N-E-R, sinner. A one-word description of every single person. That describes me. I'm a sinner. My wife is a sinner. My kids are sinners. Every member of this church is a sinner by nature. Every person who ever walked on this planet. So who is a sinner? What is it that causes people to be sinners? Well, it's very simple. Of course, you probably know. A sinner is a person who sins. If they sin once or if they've sinned 10 million times, they're sinners. A sinner is a person who sins. And what is sin? Well, sin is, according to the Bible, is the transgression of God's law. When I break God's law through disobedience or rebellion to it, whether it be through an act or whether it be through a thought or whether it be through a word I speak, there are many different ways I can break God's law. When I break God's law, then I have sinned. In fact, the Bible says transgression 
or that sin is the transgression of God's law. To transgress something means to trespass on it, to walk on it, to show disrespect to God's law. And so every one of us at some point in our life, in some way, have shown disrespect to God's law. We have broken His commandments. Not just the Ten Commandments, but there are many other commandments, of course, which He has given us. And so we've fallen short of His standard. Romans 3 and 23 is one of the most familiar verses in all the Scripture. But again, don't let familiarity give you contempt for it because the reason that it's familiar is because of the powerful truth that it, that it contains. And Romans 3 says, all have sinned and come short. We've fallen short of God's standard, every single one of us, myself included. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6 is one I quote almost weekly here. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have all turned to our own way, our own path. We've, we've taken the wrong path in life. We have all gone astray. We've taken the wrong path. And so over and over and over, the Bible repeats that all of us are sinners. Now, the emphasis of the Bible, listen to me carefully, the emphasis of the Bible is not what kind of sin you've committed because it doesn't matter. That's, that, that's really irrelevant. The emphasis of the Bible is not what kind of sin have you committed, and the emphasis of the Bible is not how many sins you've committed. Isn't that interesting? We say somebody's a great sinner. Well, you know, I don't know if we ought to even use that kind of terminology. The emphasis of the Bible is not on how many sins or what kind of sins. The emphasis of the Bible is that we have sinned. And if it only takes one lie to make a person a liar, only one thief to make a person a thief, only one murder to make a person a murderer, then it only takes one sin for a person to be honestly called a sinner. It's part of our humanity. It's part of our broken state. It's why we have wars that we've talked about today. It's why we have law-breaking. It is why we have violence and hatred and 10,000 other transgressions of God's law. Sin, a word that you don't hear much anymore, but you ought to. Every pulpit ought to flame with righteousness and denunciation of every kind of sin if I follow the example of our Lord. And I believe this, to emphasize that we all are sinners. If I were to die today and I were to go up to heaven and I had a piece of chalk in my pocket, do you have pockets with chalk in them after you die? I don't know, but it makes a good story, doesn't it? So if I went up to heaven and I had a piece of chalk in my pocket, and before I went in, I wrote on the door, for sinners only. You know what? I don't think Jesus Christ would ever have that erased. Because until you acknowledge that you're a sinner, there's no place in heaven for you today, my friend. When a person is too proud to acknowledge that he or she have sinned, they can never be saved. The starting point of salvation is to see our need, that the greatest need we have is to be saved, and that the greatest threat to our existence is to spend an eternity without Almighty God. 
And so today, if I were to write on the door of heaven for sinners only, the Lord would say, yeah, that's okay, because that's who this place is for. That's how you get in. You get in by starting to acknowledge, I have failed. I cannot save myself. And I come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here's the thing that keeps a lot of people from responding to Christ. They have this idea, and I've talked to hundreds of people since I've been in Florence that had this same idea. You know, I want to know the Lord, preacher. I want to be saved someday, but you know what? I have to clean up my act before I can come to Jesus. Now, if you clean up your act before you come to Jesus, I'm going to tell you, my friend, you're never going to come. No, there's not one word in the Bible about you cleaning up your act and reforming your life and getting rid of all your bad habits. Preacher, when I can quit cussing, I'm going to get saved. Preacher, when I can quit this or that habit, I'm going to get saved. No, don't wait on that. You see, you don't have to clean up your act. If you sincerely and genuinely come to Jesus, he'll clean you up. The cleaning up comes after it. We're supposed to catch the fish, not clean them. Amen? And so the Lord Jesus Christ will clean you up, but you have to come to him. You've got to have his power within you before you can ever clean up your act, as I hear people say. Can you imagine the prodigal son down there in that hog pen? And he says to one of his old buddies there, you know what? I'm about sick of this mess. I'm ready to go home. I believe my dad will welcome me if I come home today. And his friend says to him, well, I'll tell you what, before you do that, you're filthy. Do you know that? And you smell like a hog. And do you know what? You need to get a haircut and a shave, and you need to clean yourself up, prodigal son. Does the Bible talk about that? Absolutely not. It says he came to himself. He came to himself. The Lord obviously spoke to his heart. And he became conscious of the need. I am a filthy, sinful man, but my father will accept me. My father will love me. And he turned and he went home to his dad. The people for whom Jesus came, they're sinners. The whole world is lost. And the second reason, thing, point I want to make is the reason that Jesus came. Look back in 1 Timothy 1 and 15. He came to save sinners. Sinners, S-I-N-N-E-R-S. He came to save, S-A-V-E, sinners. Listen to Jesus in his own words, Luke 5 and 31. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to call sinners. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you love that? Now, if you're self-righteous, he didn't come for you. You just eliminated yourself there, didn't you? I came to call the righteous people? No. I came not for them. I came to call sinners to repentance. I love those words because that includes me. And in Luke 19 and 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Lost meaning I don't understand. I, 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 I can't comprehend. I don't know where I am. I don't know my way. And until we admit that, of course, there's little the Lord can do for us. And so somebody says, well, man, preacher, you just don't know me. I'm a helpless case. Nothing can help me. 
No, you're exactly who Jesus came to save today. You say, well, preacher, I can't live it if I came to Christ. I can't live it. No, there's not a word in the Bible about you living it. In fact, when he says, I came to save you, save means rescue. Here's a man drowning in the middle of Santee, and I'm there with my boat, and I drive up beside him, and I pull him into the boat. And when you say, you saved him, meaning you rescued him, he would have perished. He would have drowned had you not come by and pulled him into the boat. And if the man falls back into the water and drowns, you couldn't honestly say that I saved him. I saved him for a brief moment in time. But when the Bible speaks about God's people being saved, it's talking about permanent salvation. If the Lord saved you and then lost you, that wouldn't be salvation, would it? By definition. Salvation is permanent. It's eternal. He pulls you into the boat. Man, he ain't going to let you out. He's going to hold on. He is the one who keeps us saved. So salvation is not about just a moment in time, but it's about an eternity. When the Lord has extended his grace to us, he's rescued us, he has saved us, he has pulled us in, if you will, to his boat, and he is going to keep us forever. I heard a preacher say something one time, and I wrote it down, and it's very meaningful to me. He said, Jesus is not only necessary, Jesus is enough. Boy, how I like that. Jesus is not only necessary for our salvation, but Jesus is enough, isn't he? Jesus does 100% of the saving. Uh, Again, people have this idea that, uh, you know, they have to do something to contribute to their salvation. And over and over the Bible says it so clearly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. You see, listen to me. Hear me now for a moment. The Bible is not a book on how to save yourself. Let that sink in. Because I think so many people think it is. They think it's an instruction book on how I can save myself. I clean up my act. I begin to live by the Ten Commandments. I get baptized. I join the church. I start giving the Lord a little money. I try to live a good life. You know what you're trying to do? You're trying to save yourself. You're trying to contribute to the rescue. You can't contribute to the rescue. A dying man, a drowning man, a perishing man or woman can't do anything to contribute to their salvation. And so when you're trying to do anything, you're trying to help the Lord save you. He doesn't need your help. Jesus didn't come to help you get saved. He came to save you, the Scripture here says. Many people think that Jesus went to the cross and he sort of paid the down payment. Now we got to pay the monthly installments. Wrong. Jesus paid it all. We're going to sing that before we leave here today. Jesus paid it all. He wants all men to be saved because he's paid for all men to be saved. That old song, Jesus Paid It All, we sing it for an invitation. Boy, I love that song. Every time I hear it, I think, it means I don't have, there's nothing for me to pay. He paid the bill. My daddy used to have this term. I don't hear anybody say it anymore. I guess it's from the old days. Daddy would say he paid cash on the barrel head. 
I never had figured out where the barrel was. But, you know, he'd refer to somebody buying a car or something. They paid cash on the barrel head. Well, I tell you, I don't know what all that means, but when Jesus came and died on the cross, he paid cash on the barrel head. There ain't anything more for you and me to pay. He paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And so the Bible's not a book on telling you how you can save yourself. And it's not a book on how Jesus can help you get saved. It's a book about how Jesus did it all. He paid for every sin there with his blood on the cross. And in fact, let me tell you what the Bible describes people who are trying to work toward their own salvation. It's not very complimentary. You may get mad when I tell you what he calls you. In the book of John, chapter number 10, in the very first verse, Jesus said, if any man tries to climb up into the sheepfold, any other way, he is a thief and he is a robber. Jesus said that. I didn't say that. If you're trying to contribute to your own salvation, you're cheating, thieves, robbers. Not very complimentary. No, he wants you to just accept him. He came to do all the saving. The old song we used to sing in the country church when I was a boy, I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There is no other way but this. I, I would ne'er catch sight of the gates of life if the way of the cross I miss. Preacher went to the famous Irish horse race. In Ireland, they have a national race. It's like our Kentucky Derby, the most famous horse race in the whole nation. But the, the people in Ireland, I mean, horse racing, I guess, was invented maybe in Ireland. I don't know. Boy, they're big on horse racing over there. And this is the single biggest race of the year. The whole country just shuts down to watch it on television. And it's called the Shamrock, the Shamrock Race. And so this old preacher went one day with a fella, and the skeptic uh, was standing beside him at the race. Preacher, what do you think of the Shamrock? And the preacher said, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other rocks are Shamrocks. I like that, don't you? On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All the other rocks are sham rocks. Anything other than Jesus for your salvation is a sham, my friend. So how do you come to Jesus? How does a person come to Jesus? Well, this verse tells us. Notice what Paul here says in verse 15. This is a faithful saying. It's worthy to be accepted by everyone that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You know how you get saved? The very first thing is you confess that you need to be saved. I am chief. Paul said, I'm one of the chief sinners in my country today. Boy, if the apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners, you know, that's a pretty high standard, don't you think? You see, if Jesus, again, I emphasize it, if he came to save good people, none of us would qualify. If he came to save sinners, all of us qualify. And so that's what we call repentance, changing my mind about my sin, acknowledging I have sinned. I deserve nothing from the hand of God. 
nothing. I've been standing here for 50 years trying to preach the gospel. Do you know what that means toward my salvation? Zip. I, as a Baptist preacher, 50 years in the pulpit, I, can, I have not earned one single degree of acceptance from God through anything I've done in religious work. Any acceptance I have of Him or from Him comes because of the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ through pure grace and grace alone. So first, I have to say, and I have to mean it sincerely from my heart. It has to come from my mind. I've changed my mind about sin. Lord, I am a sinner. Paul said, I'm the chiefest of the sinners. That's why I said you could write on the door of heaven for sinners only because everybody there will have come that way. They will have had to acknowledge their sinfulness. And then the second thing you do is accept him. He said, this is a statement worthy of all acceptations there. And so every one of us have to accept him. We use the phrase in evangelical Christianity today, we talk about you must accept Christ as your personal Savior. You've all heard that. I've got to accept Jesus as my personal Savior. What does that mean, personal Savior? It means that you're not not saved because your mother was a good Christian. It means you're not saved because you go to a church that preaches the gospel. Maybe you're even a member of the church, and so the whole church sort of gets in collectively. Personal salvation means I have to do it for myself. I have to hear the gospel accept the fact that I've sinned, I must believe the gospel, and I receive Jesus Christ. It's a one-on-one transaction. It's not a group thing. When the Bible says you must be born again, it's not talking to a crowd. It's talking to individuals. Salvation is personal. There's two things every one of us is going to do in life, and nobody can do them for us. One of them, you're going to have to die alone. No matter, you may be in a crowd. You may die in the middle of this church service, but you're going to die alone. We all have to die. And the second thing is if we're going to be saved, we all have to believe. Two things I've got to do that nobody, Norma can't do it for me. Frank and Hallie, my parents couldn't do it for me. I've got to believe and I've got to face God. Two things I have to do personally. Have you accepted him as your personal Savior, not as a group thing or a collective thing? Just accept some very basic facts. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Jesus Christ was the only perfect man. He had no sin. He could not have died for man had he had his own. And he loves me, and I accept that. That's what it means with acceptation there. He died for my sins, Bill Monroe's sins, every sin I've ever committed from the first one as a little child to the last one, whenever that will be. I accept that he died for me. He rose from the grave. I accept that too, that he's the living Savior. And faith then simply means I transfer my trust from anything I could do to what he has done. I expect him and believe that what he did for me 
on the cross 2,000 years ago is adequate for my salvation. I was reading not long ago again about a man named Cornelius Vanderbilt. Many of y'all have been up to Asheville. You've seen the Biltmore Estate. This is the man that started it all. He was one of the first men to own and build railroads across America back in the mid-1800s. They called him the Commodore. He was a powerful, powerful businessman. When this man died, I think in 1877, 78, his estate then was over $100 million. Now, that doesn't impress you today. But if you translated that into today's dollars, that would be $143 billion. He would be like Jeff Bezos. He would be the richest man in the world were he to be living today. When he died, his estate was the largest estate that had ever been settled at the time of his death in the United States. He wrote one check and started Vanderbilt University. He was wealthy beyond anything you could imagine. He grew up in a Christian home, a Moravian home. And on the day I'm thinking about, he lay dying. The richest man in the world, arguably the richest man in America up to our point in time. And he's dying. Took him about eight or nine months of confinement in a bed before he passed away. He has all this money. He's dying. He called an old black man who had been one of his servants and grew up in his home. He had known him. In fact, the old man was a little boy raised with him in the home. And Vanderbilt calls him now to his side. He's one of his dearest and closest friends as well as an employee. And Vanderbilt says with a broken voice, sing the song my mama used to sing when I was a little boy and we were little kids. And the old black man sung with a broken voice, come ye sinners, poor and needy, Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. Will you let those words sink in? Listen to them. Don't just say, he's just reading a poem or a song. Think about those words. And Vanderbilt said through parched lips, yes, that's me. I'm poor and I'm needy. You see, it doesn't matter how much money you have, how much fame you have, how much celebrity you have. When you get ready to meet God, you do it personally. You do it one-on-one, nose-to-nose, eye-to-eye. Nobody can take your place. Nobody can do it for you. You can't hire them with all the money in the world. You can't hire somebody to meet God for you. And in his own mind, he said, I'm poor. The wealthiest man in the world, I'm poor. Yeah, pour in the stuff that gets you to heaven. The old man continued to sing, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Stop and think about that. 
That's what I was saying. If you wait until you clean up your act, you'll never come. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to see your need of him. See him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him, sinner. Will this not suffice? Lo, the incarnate God ascended. Plead the merits of his blood. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.